Hello and welcome to Anger Management. My name is Georg Dietz. And I'm Karin Petterson. And we are, uh, as always, looking for the people who have answers for our questions about the future of democracy, which is inherently linked to uh, the nature of technology um, and the way that digital uh, world, digital technologies, digital capitalism uh, disrupts most of our way of doing things, most of our institutions. And we were very, very happy and I guess lucky to have... Very, 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 very happy. Very happy and very, very lucky to have an hour with Joey Ito. Basically, it's... Uh, it's like having an hour with hmm, the Pope, yeah? Yeah, just Obama had an hour. Obama or, had or an hour maybe with some Joey other, Yeah. Anyway, he's the um, head of, the, um, of MIT's Media Lab... A renaissance figure a renaissance figure he's an entrepreneur according to urban legend he commutes between Cambridge and Japan every week I don't know if that's true but he has a TV show in Japan in Japan um, what else well, he, you took a class with him an awareness class yeah it was a lovely lovely class about uh, meditation we read the Dalai Lama um, Martin Buber it was really uh interesting how he i think uh, is aware of uh, how the mind is changing in our digital age and how that's uh, the losing of focus which i think is also part of his problem so if, uh, <laughs> he's addressing that in this class how losing focus is really um one of the main challenges for um mm -hmm. the human mind and thus for human society and um um, and that, that becomes a political problem. So he, I think he's maybe best known to the public for being a thinker about ethics of uh, artificial intelligence. Um, I took a class with him and Jonathan Citrin this winter where they, among other things, talked about that. But we spent this hour talking about, um, among other things, the values of... Silicon Valley, the values of this new um, power center in the world who is now building the world that we all inhabit and how this engineering culture is shaping how we are able to communicate and what new services and how the economy is structured. And well, values is a great... I mean, would you think after the conversation that they have values? Is that... Yes. But they're just alien from ours? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because in a way, yeah, that's an interesting point. We talked about um, the Maybe origins of, of, sort of the Asperger-ish world that we live in. That was but Ito's expression. Boys with Asperger creating tools for themselves in Silicon Valley. But we also talked about the next step, uh, a word which... Is fascinating to you. So, how do you deal with death? How do you do away with death? That's, I think, the next project for this um, in Silicon Valley for this th this small contingency of people. And the I I had never heard the expression death deathists, and that's apparently what the these um, Silicon Valley. Um, Hotshots call the people who don't believe that it's possible to, within a generation or two, um, create the antidote to death for this small elite group, of course. So it was a deep dive. It was a deep dive in, and I once it wasn't very optimistic. He's a very cheerful person, but when we talked about the future of the institutions we have and the kind of how mismatched they are compared to the speed he sees, he sees now in terms of how the world is changing. Um, he, didn't, he, he didn't sound very uh, optimistic at all that was about part. the future of uh, democracy as we know it, I guess. That was a great conversation, very engaging. And um, as usual, if you like it, please. Um, Tweet about it. Tweet about it and rate it, please, in in iTunes. Enjoy. Hello and welcome, Joy Ito. Um, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, we're here at the 
MIT Media Lab, the famed MIT Media Lab. Um, and I think the, the way to start this conversation might be to reflect a little about the, this place because I've, I've, I've taken classes here, uh, Karin has taken classes here and it's a very inspiring place. Um, a, a friend of mine who works here said the other day nothing really came out of the Media Lab invention-wise so far but still it's a, it's a magical place <laughs> for ideas um, or to bring together people and I'm, I'm curious about that because I think it ties into a broader theme of how change can happen in society or how you rethink uh, eventually how things are done in a democracy or how to define democracy. So I'm, I'm curious about not the whole history of, of the Media Lab, which was mm -hmm. founded in the, in the 90s by Nicholas Negroponte. And, and you came here in 2011. Yeah. So, but, but maybe sort of the, this, 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 time, this time at the Media Lab. So mm -hmm. what, what, what's, the, what's the specific, what, what do you do here? What's, yeah. the, what's the secret? And, what, and what's the mission? And what's the mission? Well, I will say we have invented stuff. One thing very important for the web is we invented the cascading style sheet, CSS, because the web was so ugly. But we worked a lot on the early Internet standards. A lot of the things that came out of here are parts of other things. So e-ink was invented here, and a lot of the Internet messaging was invented here. A lot of the parts when you open a personal computer or think about messaging on the Internet. So it was originally... Um, part of the architecture school, there was a thing called the Architecture Machine Group, which was the first sort of multimedia workstations back then. And the idea of Nicholas was to get multimedia workstations on everyone's desktop. Nicholas famously said in the 90s that newspapers would be delivered over, over networks, and everybody laughed at him. And so a lot of the Media Lab has been about sort of building and predicting the future. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we have is kind of You know, the idea is invented here. So touchscreen, uh, multi-touch, all of those were first shown at the Media Lab. So we have the members really kind of get inspired here, and then they go off and build them. So we don't necessarily get credit for everything, but we're usually a lot of times the people who are coming up with the ideas um, before others. And so the, the, the mission of the Media Lab is, is, is really to explore those spaces um, in... So, so our program is called Media Arts and Sciences. So it's arts, design, science, and technology, and looking for those spaces that it's difficult for traditional research labs to go because they're constrained by the constraints of their discipline or they're constrained by the constraints of their funding. And so we're always trying to keep moving. So we started 31 years ago in computers and multimedia, and then we went to Internet and networks, and then we went to... Um, uh, uh, data and uh, AI. AI we've been doing since the beginning and then more recently um, I think we've been shifting to the hard sciences like biology and microelectronics and so right now I think a lot of our work is uh, and it's always we call it anti-disciplinary so the space between the disciplines so many of our labs all of our labs have multiple disciplines and different types of people so so we're so again I think we get between the disciplines by pulling these things together um, But a lot, a lot of our work right now is um, is biomedical. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is that we, we instead of doing um, academia or academic publishing as a primary thing, um, a lot of um, the work that we do is about deploying into the real world. And so Nicholas famously said, demo or die, instead of publish or perish. And I added the idea of deploying things um, more and more. So it is a workshop atmosphere or a lab, as you say, very practical on, on the one hand. But I think more so it's very much a way of thinking yeah, here. Um, and, and I'm curious about that. You, yeah. you, uh, in your book Whiplash, or, or you have general sort of yeah. principles of, of what you believe mm -hmm. the Media Lab is about or, I guess, what you think. And that's mm -hmm. a question the future is about or, or will should be about so, so yeah. it's, it's there's an anti-authoritarian mm -hmm. streak in that there's an anarchistic streak in yeah. that I would yeah. think there's a, a very a, a very fundamentally democratic streak yeah. in that uh, um, and 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 an interdisciplinary mm -hmm. sort of, and, and the, the, the words that you use is are, are like emergence versus authority or disobedience mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. obedience, mm -hmm. um, bottom-up, pull mm -hmm. versus push. Can you explain a little, yeah. uh, as, as Karen says, the mission or, or the, sort of the philosophy, the way of thinking that, that you try to yeah. teach here? So, so, so the, a couple of teach, different parts, yeah. right? So 
so we are the only lab that is also an academic program. So we are able to redesign the way we think about learning. Instead of lectures and textbooks, we learn through doing. Um, they call it constructionist um, theory, which is actually comes from Piaget. It goes to Seymour Papert and now to Mitch Resnick. But the idea is that you learn by doing projects rather than learning through uh, textbooks or f through pure theory. So the idea of building to learn and um, is, is uh, kind of, in a way, practice and deploying is kind of like working class academics, right? Like really high level academics love the theory. Um, we think that the practice actually informs your ability to, to, to think about things and to learn. And so in that sense, even from an academic perspective, it's somewhat democratic in that it's about actually doing things. And for us, um, you know, the, the, so, so in an interesting way, I, I, you know, I, I've been here, this is my sixth year, but I come from the internet, which was about permissionless innovation, about bottom-up, about sort of this uh, uh, generative uh, uh, internet innovation and, and democracy. And it's interesting how, even though the Media Lab was, um, you know, predates a lot of the internet pieces, uh, it has a very similar um, philosophy. And, you know, I think there are people at the Media Lab who aren't necessarily, uh, 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 how would I put it, um, uh, left-wing or bottom-up in terms of grassroots, in terms of their, their politics. But, um, but they, they all lean towards this idea of questioning authority um, and disrupting the status quo. And in a way, you know, whether you're a scientist trying to question an existing uh, theory of science or whether you're an uh, uh, activist uh, trying to, you know, fight for civil rights, um, the, the, the behavior of sort of questioning authority, thinking for yourself and being somewhat, creating somewhat of an emergent order, um, they have a lot of similarities. And I think that the... Um, you know the, the 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 idea of also just constantly challenging each other is part of the DNA of the lab. I'm, I'm curious about about that because I think that the will uh, inform the conversation. This this dichotomy between a certain optimism about technology and or a pessimism that mm -hmm. that you can have towards the the realities of of, of technology and that ambivalence is I, I guess true in what you say, but but. So you talk about dis disruption in a way, which is the philosophy of the Silicon Valley, and it's often mm -hmm. different. It's, it's different, I would argue, from from what you describe, because you're. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you say challenging authority, yes, um, that that is disruption, but but your but your words are different and your mm -hmm. concepts are different. Mm -hmm. um, so so I I would <laughs> mm -hmm. argue that you're a part of. Um, Uh, of of this side of yeah. of, of the gap, <laughs> there's another side of the gap, which is sort of uh, yeah the, the more more yeah. Peter Thelian philosophy. Could could you yeah. so, describe sort of your view of politics in that yeah. context or your role in in, in that realm? So, so, I would say that I don't necessarily speak on behalf of the Media Lab on everything. You know, I'm I'm in charge of a certain environment. Uh, management, but uh, the Media Lab is extremely diverse in terms of um, people's views. So I would say that we have a very. But, but this specifically about you, then. So if then. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. It, it, but but I would say you know we have a healthy dose of techno optimism okay. here. Um, I don't think there as there is as many singularity believers. But generally, I think we would have a healthy dose of techno utopians. But we also have a pretty healthy dose of of. Uh, critical designers and, and um, uh, uh, questioners. And it, it creates an interesting dynamic. And I think we also attract a lot of people who are very optimistic and we want to invent the future and so on. But I think that the, the, the skepticism is also built into our, our, our system. So many of our, like for instance, you know, Hiromi Ozaki is a, it comes from um, um, Royal College of Art, worked on critical design and all of her work is kind of questioning um, technology. So that's built in as a sort of Hopefully, some balance. Um, you know, my 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 personal view is uh, that uh, you know the the unchecked techno utopian, um, up, and I've been criticized of being techno utopian too. So it de sort of depends on where you are on the spectrum. You know, I'm I'm generally optimistic about technology, but I feel that we fundamentally um, um, are uh, the, the 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 people who have control of the technology. I think are are misguidedly optimistic. Um, 
And to your point, I think that there is a Silicon Valley style. Um, I'm from that community, so I know it very well. And I've definitely changed a lot since I moved to the East Coast and have been spending more time with social scientists and lawyers and others. Um, but I think it's an important time because you can sit here and shake your finger at Silicon Valley, but you have to make them listen to you. And the only way that we can listen to them and they can listen to us is we have to create a common language. And so one of the things, you know, in, in sort of biology, if you look at um, how uh, uh, you disable um, viruses or you see the predator and prey systems is you kind of have to understand the algorithm of your opponent in order to take their energy. And um, you can't really... You know, intervene in Silicon Valley without understanding Silicon Valley, the gods they worship, the beliefs they have. And it's hard to understand something until you kind of are able to also sometimes put yourself in their shoes. And uh, and I think one of the interesting things about Silicon Valley is they've got this um, reinforcement system where they have a basic belief, I think, in Silicon Valley that, like, if you go to Mark Andreessen's um, office at at the, in the big venture capital fund, it says software will eat the world. You know, there's a big picture. And they believe that you can point software at anything. And if, especially with, you know, this new artificial intelligence getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And they, you know, say smarter than humans, you know, sometime soon that um, that everything can be solved with this. And the markets and the companies they built have sort of reinforce this view because the successful people are all billionaires, right? And and if you measure your success by money, um, clearly Silicon Valley feels like their model has been successful. So they're, um, um, uh, so, 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 you know, it's definitely continuing, their star is continuing to rise, yeah? Um, so I'm super in, uh, curious about that. And, and, I guess also coming from coming from Europe and coming from um, geographically a space that's far away uh, mm -hmm. from where we are now, the American East Coast, but even farther away from the from the West Coast and the, and Silicon Valley that you're talking about. Um, and you're talking about this um, the people that are in control of the companies and the structures and the algorithms that are more and more structuring our lives are. Um, come from techno optimism, and then you 're talking about you know the you mentioned the, the gods they worship and can you talk a little bit more about about that what kind of values yeah. uh, is it that you 're actually talking about is it um, market fundamentalism libertarianism what what is it what is it that these people worship and what is it that they 're trying to build So I, I think one way to think about it is you have to imagine yourself as a young white boy uh, who is slightly Asperger's, so you don't like the messiness of interacting with humans, you don't like looking girls in the eye, everything is a little bit confusing, but you have a computer. And the computer you program, and the computer does exactly like you say, and you get better and better at programming the computer, and the computer becomes more and more powerful, and you realize that you can create software and design it to do all kinds of things, and you get better and better at communicating with the computer, and you become, you know, a, a software genius. You know, not genius, but very productive in the computer. So, and then the real world continues to be scary and messy, right? And then you make a software system. Um, it could be, whatever, I, I won't name names because then... You'll match them with the people. But, but imagine that you get a successful company and it starts to go. And a lot of these companies, actually, the, the systems are kind of the online scalable version of the thing that they wanted, wish they had. You know, So, so if you're a long, lonely person, you're going to set up a social network for dating. Or you might, you know, and, and, and then what happens is you start to realize that, you know, with computers... With algorithms, you can make very complex things very simple. You can take over markets. You can, and and it, and it starts to reinforce this idea that with uh, enough, uh, with the right algorithm and the right execution, in a very engineering kind of way, um, you can build systems that make all of this messy stuff uh, straightforward or simple. Like search has become easier, uh, networking has become easier, car hailing has become easier. So much of the messy world is becoming organized, and the people who have designed these have become billionaires. But they're 
this method, whether it's the business success or the fact that they're able to make these complex systems quite simple through algorithms, is reinforcing the idea that maybe if someday, if they could just get the algorithm right and they train it with the right data, all this messy stuff like politics and society, everything will just go away because the computer will just be so smart that it will transcend uh, the inability for humans to get out of their own way and that our brains will you know, get uploaded into computers and the computers will just get infinitely smart. And, um, and this transcendence idea is kind of consistent with this geometric growth in wealth, in power. And if you, if you look at sort of the power of computing also, it, it, it kind of goes along this curve. And, and the, the god that they worship is that, and I say they, I mean, it's, I would say, but a decent chunk of these people in Silicon Valley, I think, is that um, they may argue about when singularity will come, but they mostly believe that singularity is coming. And that many of them believe they'll live forever and so that they will beat death. And so sort of it's, it's also kind of interesting because this immortality has become kind of the god of atheists, right? Because I think if you're non-atheist, you don't really care about death. Um, the, the, the singularity people call them deathists, you know, people who believe in death, because you have an afterlife, right? But if you don't have an afterlife, you have to beat death. And so the so singularity people believe that you, in immortality, either through transcendence into computers or through the idea that we will sort of beat biology, um, either directly or through computers. But this idea also, many of these people believe this is going to happen in the next 10 years or maybe in, in maybe 2040, but that all of the, a lot of these problems that we have be, will be um, manageable as long as we get the algorithm right. So they're not really that interested in politics or all this other law. They think that... Um, so it's a personal project more than a pro project for humanity or how... But, but I think, you know, and, and some of these people are my friends, but, you know, they believe that uh, they have to hedge their risks so we're going to make sure we can escape to Mars, make sure we can do this, make sure we can do that. But that if they can just beat this horizon line, this sort of event horizon of, okay, if you can just live another 10 years, you'll be immortal. If you can just live another 20 years, computers will be so good that wars won't happen anymore. You know, so, so it's just this race against running away from the... I mean, it, it reminds me of the book, you know, by Francis Fukuyama about end of history. Yeah. So there's this idea that if they can just get past this dark age, that we will be in this this beautiful utopia. And um, and and the, and the problem with this kind of idea, even if it may be true, right? There's a possibility something like this could be true, but if you kind of constantly bet on it. No one's taking care of this messy stuff. And a lot of these people have money, power, influence. And I think the, the risk for me that I see is that uh, uh, if you get the timing wrong, um, you know, one of my friends who's very into this is German, you know, and, and he says, yeah, eventually it will all figure it itself out. But I, but I said, if you get the timing wrong, you could have a, a Holocaust level incident before you, it corrects, you know, and, and you, 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 you have to kind of be doing all of this uh, messy politics stuff right now. But, um, but I, think, I think the current political environment has shaken them up a little bit. I think that uh, uh, our inability to address climate and looking at some of the models for climate um, are making many of um, Silicon Valley folks concerned. So, but the way that I think Silicon Valley thinks about solving problems is also different because they think about entrepreneurship and disruption and software as the primary tools rather than um, you know, collective action or, or um, sort of bottom-up um, work, even though many of the companies in Silicon Valley are, um, exist on the basis of widely um, popular uh, consumer services. I have a question. I have a background in, in economics, and there's this ongoing debate in, in economics now about why kind of the gains, the productivity gains with the new uh, inventions mm -hmm. in the um, in the tech industry is not uh, spreading uh, through to the real economy in, in, mm -hmm. in a larger degree. And I was just wondering when you're speaking, talking now, is it is that connected to the philosophy, to this philosophy? Is it connected to the uh, to the fact that there's no real project of kind of spreading this, these new um, technologies or this mm -hmm. new knowledge uh, and and that kind of creates an insularity or uh, mm -hmm. just this 
smaller spaces where things are moving fast and not really um, yeah. affecting a larger part of the world. Or think, what's your take on that? I think there. Is, I think that productivity gains one is a fairly complex yeah. question. No, you know? it is. Yeah, sure. Um, because I think, for instance, when we talk about productivity, we don't include um, child rearing, which I think is a hugely important function. So it's not clear that productivity gains are actually what we're looking for. Yeah, I think we, no. we, you know, we want some societal value, and it's hard to just use GDP. On the other hand, I do think that uh, um, that the idea of consumer internet is to create consumers not so much producers right and i think that early ebay you know um, when you talk to pierre i thought that was kind of a cool thing because it unlocked a lot of uh, jobs for people that you know that didn't exist before but more and more i think um, the services that we see being created um, they're solutions to problems but they're not tools to generate. Yeah. And so we and we, we talked about this in, the, in our class, but the generative internet. So in yeah. the old days, you had you know, a PC that you could do anything with, and you had VisiCalc, which was an, a way, you know, the spreadsheet allowed accountants to pour their creativity into computers. Now you have an iPhone where you're not allowed to hack anything. And so what I think we're, having, we're seeing, and also like coding, you know, I think coding, learning to code, a lot of it is to get a job in a big uh, IT company, it's not to write your own code for your own stuff, you know, your own, you know, little business, right? So, so I think that, that, that the business model with the cloud and with a lot of these things is trying to sell uh, solutions and services to people rather than giving them tools, tools to build their, yeah. build their own thing. Now, now, they will argue that, oh, no, we have tools. This is a tool. That's a tool. But, yeah. but I think the mindset is, uh, is much more of a, 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 a solution-based system um, but I don't know how it, it how how we should think about um, productivity gains because I think one of the other questions is sort of the goals of society you know is 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 growth and productivity how we should be valuing measuring the value of society or is there is there something else like flourishing you know um, or uh, arts or other things that 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 aren't calculated into productivity so um, uh, George and I have been this semester auditing a class with a Brazilian philosopher and thinker, politician, um, Roberto Mangabeira Unger. And he, mm-hmm. he talks a lot about the inability of, of the majority of the both people and the economy to catch up with the vanguard. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uses Silicon Valley as a metaphor and as, a, as an example of a place where a lot of uh, creativity happens and new ways of uh, working, of thinking happens. But and kind of the tragedy of uh, those ways of thinking and working together is not spreading to the rest of the mm-hmm. economy. And it's not only about productivity gains, it's also about quality of life and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. being able to to exist in a creative space. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering um, if you could talk a little bit ab- about about why it's so hard then for those practices to kind of spread to mm-hmm. the economy as a whole. Well, Silicon Valley has a a philosophy and a method that has become extremely uh, competitive and well-defined. So if you go to Silicon Valley, it's not actually not easy. Um, there's tons of competition. And, you know, I think that the, 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 the problem is that uh, it's, it's, but it's similar when you come out to sort of the Ivy League schools in the East Coast. You know, it's because you have so many academics here, it forces everybody to be competitive. And so in, in any situation or like Shenzhen, you create this, uh, uh, this density that, that makes the competition so high so that, um, you know, and, and smaller versions of it just can't compete with these big systems. And, and, and again, it, it, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, uh, the Internet has allowed, you can be in Silicon Valley and, dip, and create Uber that hits the whole world, right? And so you can basically build everything in Silicon Valley but sell it everywhere in the world. So I, I was talking to one hedge fund guy who thinks that 15% of the world's economy will eventually go through Silicon Valley. And because, and, and because if you're talented, that's the place you go, right? Similarly, all of the manufacturing keeps going through Shenzhen because that's where all of the, the, the manufacturing skills are. So there's a, I think the globalization, ironically, has created these massive uh, uh, global centers for particular types of things. It just turns out that software, which is Silicon Valley's main thing, is at least in this this period 
is uh, uh, an, an extremely efficient way of, of disintermediating and creating uh, economic value. I think the next phase could be biotech, or it could be um, uh, artificial intelligence, or it could be many things. And it doesn't always have to be um, Silicon Valley, but in the short run, I think they're um, but I, I don't think Silicon Valley is going to have a monopoly on innovation um, because sort of by definition, because of the way they're working, they do have some biotech and they do have other things. But um, this uh, uh, method that they've perfected doesn't work on um, on every problem. And I think even if they take 15% of the G- world's GDP, there's still 85% left. So um, when you think about uh, democracy or changing institutions or even just the public having like a minimum of um insights and um into what's happening in mm-hmm. these um in these places where this new technology is created which um affects all of us what are the new institutions that are that, that we need because it seems to me that there's this massive power shift now and um all these resources uh, concentrated in fewer and fewer places and, you know, this um, explosion of inequality. What, and how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, there's a great article by Marshall Gantz on sort of activating the uh, progressive uh, grassroots. I don't yeah. know if you... Kennedy seen. School uh, social, old social organizer yeah. and kind of Harvard and, legend. Yeah, and you know, very big part of Chavez, very big part of... Um, uh, President Obama's camp, Obama. Also, I think he was involved in Bernie's campaign. But he's he's great, and he's basically identified that, in his view, that um, it's not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It was the Tea Party. It was the local activism over decades, and the churches and everyone that sort of ignited this new sort of generation of of conservatives in the U.S. and that the you know the the progressives have completely lost touch with these groups and now you see that you know with the town hall meetings and things like that um the progressives are starting to organize in in local communities and that that local community organizing is going to be a key part of rebalancing what's going on and i think i think that's true i mean i think that you know there obviously there's some institution building that needs to go on at multiple levels, both locally and sort of, you know, the future of journalism. You know, there's there's a lot of things we need to work on. But I think that the sort of democratic process and the engagement, I, I would be very curious about learning more about how it's working in Europe. But I think that uh, um, we've been doing too much centralized institution building. Um, and, and, you know, in a way, Silicon Valley... Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. There's a great book by Annalise Saxenian called um, Regional Advantage about how uh, uh, Boston lost the computer industry to Silicon Valley because we had these large institutions that focused on funding and permission and authority. And once the cost of doing things went down so much that just students could do stuff, um, the the model of venture capitalists chasing chasing these entrepreneurs made sense, you know. But I think similarly politics and others, we'd been building these large institutions with these plans and all this, and then this kind of anti-institutional um, grassroots movement uh, uh, has, has, has captured the moment, and I think we need to f- think about that. Yeah, but even, so the, I, I guess that's a U.S. problem also, the, the political extreme political polarization here, and even though we have the same kind of right-wing populist movements in Europe, but I'm also thinking about just the fact that we now have these huge um companies more yeah. more powerful than you know big nation states um building our information infrastructure mm-hmm. controlling our flow of news um using our data mm-hmm. and 
how to how 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 should we think about that as citizens and as mm-hmm. democrats uh it was small yeah <laughs> small so, d democrats uh, how to counter the power of these these companies and yeah. so uh, to I, make them accountable somehow so I, i i think of it with biological metaphors i think that uh, these monopolies whether they're you know gun lobby or whether they're um some of these big companies um, are like cancers, right? So what happens is in a normal system, you have these uh, regulatory mechanisms or an immune system that sort of tries to counteract the uncontrolled growth. Um, and we built a democratic system with checks and balances and lawmaking and da-da-da-da-da um, that when things move slowly before the internet, um, the, the lawyers and the judges could kind of keep track of things and break up the monopolies and challenge those, those in power. And the journalists could challenge these powerful institutions. But now with the speed and the scale and the ability for people to direct power in a very sophisticated way, um, it's almost impossible now to slow the, the gains of these powerful organizations because they have, like you said, they have usurped the ability for, this is a Lawrence Lessig's point, but you know, the corruption has now, corruption, the, the, the role of money in politics has gotten to the point that it's uncheckable. Um, My view is the role of machine learning and AI will get to the point where they will become somewhat uncheckable. And so what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a somewhat outdated biological system with an immune system that isn't prepared. And we're infected with a whole new class of virus. This sounds really, really, really dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's very dangerous. And I think the problem is the answer isn't a political answer. It's not like you can just... Um, you know, cut out one of the, the, the cancers. We, we now have a system where this whole new category of cancer is unmanageable with the immune system that we have. And, um, and so I think what needs to happen is you need... So it's some fundamental things, like we need to rethink how law works. We need to rethink how um, auditing and accounting works. We need to rethink how the judicial system works. And, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an architectural change, not just a content change. Because you get rid of one of these, the next one will come. I mean, it, and, and, and the, the, anyway, so, so I'm somewhat pessimistic in the short term because I think all of the, the traditional devices that we have, um, the, the traditional media, the traditional um, uh, 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 you know, lawmaking process, um, they're, they're, they're not functioning anymore. I have to, George wants to ask questions too, but I have to follow up on this. So you're mentioning the media, and you, you are on the board of the New York Times. Yeah. So, what do you think? What do you tell the New York Times and other media companies? How should they act in this environment when Facebook and Google are basically stealing their content, monetizing their content, and uh, destroying their business model? And I mean, and democracy kind of on the way. Uh, what, <laughs> What's your advice? How do you how do you think about that? To to who to to New York, <laughs> New York Times? Times? No, I don't know. You can speak in general terms. I think I think in general terms, I mean, I I think that what is happening is I think well I think first of all I I believe that innovation and adaptation comes when eventually when you need it. So spam got really bad, and we were about to shut down the internet, and then we kind of figured it out. Um, Even and 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 the reason I don't believe in singularity is almost anything, whether it's an epidemic or or a stock bubble, eventually corrects itself. And so I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. But that we will first of all, the young people will start to deliver develop literacies that we can't we don't have right now. So they'll so the some of it is generational. I think that uh, you know the the Facebooks of the world, um, you know, just even during the last year, have gone from saying we are not editors to okay, we we got to do something. And so there's an awareness in the platforms. I think you know to put my New York Times hat on. You know, we have a new generation of leadership at the New York Times, which are more, more tech savvy. We're thinking about our role. We're constantly thinking about how we interact with Facebook. Where are we? What are we doing here? Um, and you know, we'll see if we survive. But I think that. Uh, Um, so I think I think it's going through a very tough period, um, but I think tough periods are when people become creative, and I think the other part is that you know, I you know I I, I want to be careful about how I say this, but you know even with under Trump right now, you know, so government institutions are not very efficient, 
and they're not very good at evolving. And whether you talk about the EPA or any of these other things, I think what's happening right now is terrible. You know, on the other hand, the traditional way of trying to like so even under um, Al Gore, the EPA had a really difficult time reforming itself. Um, so kind of sometimes you need a shock to the system for the system to start to change. And I think right now what's happening is there's a shock. I think it's going to be very painful. Um, but I think and I hope that what emerges out of um, this new system is, is, is going to be uh, more robust, uh, more thoughtful. Um, I think maybe reinventing some of these institutions. Because when I talk to some of the, the people who are now working together, who would never have worked together if the if world was going better. Um, and those are the sparks, I think, that will generate new ideas. So, um, so I, so I'm, I'm, I think it's going to be painful. I'm short-term pessimistic, but long-term, I feel like we have the opportunity to um, uh, try things no one would have tried before, um, because there's almost nothing to lose. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I, I would like to go back to this one description, to the description of Silicon Valley, which which I found really uh, telling. So, of the emptiness at the core. The authoritarian streak in in the valley, or the religious aspect, and and the questions of um, why would they be different? I mean, why would they? Why would you try to place values in this system? Um, meaning, uh, why? So, I think the problem might be that that you look to the valley for answers that aren't there because it's. It's not about politics, so if it's mm -hmm. it's not they don't think about society as you say clearly. They just imply that they have the means to change, and they they, they do. So um, I, I think my question would be: um, so Manchester capitalism or, or, or factories just were political and so, 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 so societal revolutions, but but the, and, and they had a system of politics that came from that structure, which is representative democracy. Which we still have, mm -hmm. so but they didn't change the this. The, they didn't establish the, the way the politics was was done. They just just changed the way society worked. So eventually, somebody came along and and, and figured it out. Um, and and from from what I, you wrote early in, in 2003 about emergence and democracy. So so you were very constructively thinking about technology in this democratic way and, and challenging the the way representative democracy is done and and um uh, so, so so i'm curious about about that so of how 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 do you envision that new form of democracy that that is probably not representative but but much more mm -hmm. direct and mm -hmm. much less based on maybe election or electoral circles um and and then secondly i would be curious um because you're so admirably uh, precise sometimes about employing technology in a specific con context as you say changing the legal structure you, you talked about or wrote about employing AI and, and, and the ju ju judicial system uh, yeah. replacing judges which sounds to a lot of people I guess shocking but but I, I guess that's the problem it's not shocking it's it's mm -hmm. it makes sense so so I guess um, the, the two questions would be related in a way to how how would joy Edo's just new world, mm -hmm. brave new world, mm -hmm. uh, look like. Yeah. So, so I think AI is a topic we can talk about for a minute, but um, and it's slightly related, but not exactly with the way that Silicon Valley, uh, I think, is operating. I think Silicon Valley, first of all, I think part of this is <clears throat> related to the sort of American dream that, you know, wealth represents success and success represents intelligence. And, and I think that... Uh, um, You know, right now, Silicon Valley is very wealthy and very powerful, so obviously people ask Silicon Valley for the answers. I don't think that most of the people in Silicon Valley are unethical or evil. I think they have just grown up in a environment that their um, uh, the, the way that they think about how to come up with a solution is very sort of homogeneous and has a a particular point of view. And I think where you might want more diversity, they have one way to approach things. And so far, it's been successful for a whole category of things. Um, so I, I, w I don't attribute too much malice to them. And I think that uh, a lot of them are uh, overly optimistic about the 
solving things in software that would require more fundamental engagement or ch changing, especially when you're, you know, because I guess my point is that, you know, yes, you can scale Facebook or whatever to reach everyone, but you're actually not um, engaging them in something like a democratic process. You're engaging them as a consumer of a service, which is, I think, slightly different. Uh, on AI, just to be a little be specific, I think that... Um, um, you know the so so Julia Angwin's paper, uh, which was about um, she she in ProPublica, and I think she was a, a Pulitzer finalist this year. But um, but she showed that uh, uh, at least in one county where she was able to get the data, that the judges were using um, this risk score from the machine as uh, as a way to determine sentencing in addition to bail. And that for a set of category of people, um, mostly white males, that they were getting almost random, so not that useful. And then for um, African Americans, they were biased against. And when you look at the study, you know, it show, they don't ask your race, but just by collecting the data and doing the analysis, the system was biased against them. Um, and when you, when I was talking to a prosecutor the other day, he said, you know, the problem is that if you let somebody off on bail and then they go and kill somebody, it's your problem. But if you say, no, but the risk rating said this, it's not your problem. So there's this interesting moral hazard right now that's already in, happening, um, which is if, you know, you have a machine making a decision for you, even if you're the one writing the sentencing or pushing the button, you already have given away your, your responsibility. And we see this in medicine. For instance, if you're a doctor and you imagine that the, uh, uh, I mean, there's a case that I heard where diagnostic, that when the doctor overrules the machine, the uh, doc, the machine is right 70% of the time. Doctor's wrong 70% of the time. So if that's true as a doctor, it's going to be very difficult for you to overrule the computer. And similarly, if you're, um, uh, uh, you know, a pilot, or, 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 or even let's take these uh, drone attacks. So they're controlled by humans. But a lot of the data that feeds into who's the target comes from machines that are looking at people's phone records and doing pattern recognition. So you may be allowing the human to push the button for the kill decision, but the kill decision may have been already informed mostly by machines. So I think that AI is already in engaged. I think that even though humans may be pushing the button and it feels like agency, in fact, it's not if you don't have the ability to overrule. If computer says, pick A, B, C, or D, but I think it's C, the human's going to push C. So when we talk about autonomous systems, judges, um, uh, fighter pilots, uh, doctors, or autonomous vehicles, I think that if your job is just to push the button, it's already the machine in charge. Now, everyone's afraid of these robots with full autonomy, but I'm already afraid of uh, machines controlling this. And I think the answer and this is Media Lab, we, we, we love to work on interfaces. So what we want is we want an answer from the machine which is a which involves the human being in the modeling of the answer. Because the problem is if you machine produces answer, human approves the answer, that's no there's no input from the human. So what you want is a is a system where we call it human in the loop or society in the loop, so that the the machine is modeling the human and the human's opinion is coming into the machine, and then you've jointly cooperated on the answer. So there has to be a, an evolution of a new system where, and, and it's kind of like with, with, with chess. So you had humans losing to chess machines, and now we find that a combination of humans and machines can beat uh, um, computers um, in chess. And so this sort of collaborative relationship between humans and machines, both at the individual level, but also at the collective intelligence system level, is really important. And I think what we're doing right now, and this gets back to the Silicon Valley part, is you have a lot of computer scientists who come to try to solve your problem. So your doctor will give you a diagnostic machine. Here you go. And then you have a doctor with some computer scientists who have programmed the machine, in their view, to solve your problem. It's giving you an answer. You may be right 30% of the time, but you're going to keep clicking yes because you're afraid to risk the 70% of being wrong. What we need is we need a tool for the doctor to understand the machine to then guide the machine together and put the doctor's opinions so that the machine and the doctor together come in with the answer. So just to give an example, I, uh, I remember from class you talked about mm -hmm. the... Um, 
self-driving cars yep. and uh, the biker on the right with a with a with a helmet and the biker on the left without the helmet. Could you just uh, yeah yeah so, talk so, about that example because I think it's interesting. Yeah. So so a lot of people think that all you need for self-driving cars is um, to follow the law, but it turns out that human beings make a lot of trade-off decisions. And, and, and some people, we, we call this a trolley problem from philosophy. Some people argue that the trolley problem is kind of edge case and is too philosophical, but I think it's important. So the example that I think that um, Karen, you just mentioned was the one that I use in class, where if you're driving and you have a guy on the left without a helmet and the guy on the right with a helmet, and there's a helmet law, and then you have to swerve because somebody jumps in front of your car. Do you swerve and hit the guy with the helmet? Or you do swerve and hit the guy without the helmet. And I'll say in the U.S., most people swerve to the guy with the helmet because he's more likely to survive. So this is a utility over law, in my view. I did this to a Japanese automobile company research team, and half the class said, we'll hit the guy without the helmet. He should die. He's breaking the law. You know. And to me, that's the the values of that community. And so if you're a car driving through a, a, a neighborhood and let's say you have a uh, a baby who is sick um, and there's a red light, the car should say, okay, I'm now in a neighborhood. What's the neighborhood's opinion on law versus baby's life? And negotiate with the traffic light. Okay, I'm going to run this light. And because so, so I guess the point, and I think what is that the law is not just black and white there's a human element and if and if it's a if it's a very nice day with no traffic you should be able to go faster than if it's a wet day and so 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 it, it, you the algorithm needs to pull into the to the behavior the human values but the question is how are those human values brought in because the human isn't going to be making the split second decisions but the human should somehow be able to inform the machine about the values of society. And, and this gets back to basic lawmaking, right? In, in the U.S., especially with common law, common law is supposed to reflect the sort of the, the, the practices of the day. And so somehow the judge is supposed to, re and the jury is supposed to reflect, you know, this application of the Constitution in the values of the day. But the values of the day evolve, and the values of the day are... are um, influenced by the technologies of the day. So so you have AI coming in to influence our behavior, and then our behavior should influence the law, and the law should influence the technology. And this gets back to this the Lessig thing, we call it the Lessigian quadrants, where you have law, norms, society, and technology, and how they relate with each other. And I think what we will see is this kind of co-evolution. And I, I do think, though, that, that you know, for the for in the future, short term, we'll have machines doing a lot of work and things like checking the speed, although I was just gave a talk today and somebody said, but, you know, you don't want everyone to be too strict on speed because it depends on the environment. And then you have the Supreme Court in the United States where you probably don't want robots, although one of the new candidates <laughs> behaves like a robot. Um, but you want that to be very human and very values-driven. And then there's somewhere in between, right? And so certain cases you, you want people to be able to make uh, human judgments, um, But that I think that evolution is 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 going to be critical. I think though, what will be interesting is I think Europe and Japan and the U.S. are going to develop very different approaches uh, and values, and I think we'll start to see that in the reflected in law and in in the way we think about AI. Yeah, I think it's it's very telling as you describe that the fight for democracy more or less is now not against machines, but it's in machines. Mm -hmm. So so that's where. It, happens that that's where it takes place and you say humans in a loop or society in the loop which is um, yeah. I guess a place like MIT Media Lab is, is a place where humanities and, and technology sort of could come together and, and form mm -hmm. this kind of knowledge um, I'm, st I'm still curious you're um, avoiding in a way the description of the system surrounding that I, I guess mm -hmm. with the with the Lessig quadrant it makes sense that change happens through all, all four factors um, mm -hmm. Values being, I guess, the most, uh, I guess, important, but but also um, mm -hmm. slowest, maybe, I guess. Um, but but if you, if you take your description of how you think the world mm -hmm. works in the 21st century or work, should work, so of this the 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 bottom up approach and and mm -hmm. the, um, the the 
compass, not the map, mm -hmm. um, uh, um, the, the bottom, bottom up, and, and the emergence of mm -hmm. the, the swarm intelligence. Mm -hmm. That's all not the way the politics in mm -hmm. the classical uh, um, parliamentary Brexit yeah. Trumpian way in this brutalist 20th century way works yeah. today. Um, well, do you have do you have a a path for that, or or do you? Do you, if you say short-term pessimistic, long-term optimistic, how really concretely, how long do you think the system works? Well, I think, I don't know how much is generational or not, but if you look at, and this is Joshua Ramos' um, um, book, The Age of the Unthinkable, and also his recent one, um, Seven Cents, talks about this, but, but the world is now, you know, whether we're talking about a little while ago, Hezbollah and now ISIS, it's a completely networked um, system, and our international relations and the way that we think about defense and, 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 and politics is completely hierarchical and crystalline, right? And it, there's no... It, complete, the institutions are completely behind. And so we can't win against these big network systems using... It's kind of like the... In American history, it's the Redcoats versus the guerrilla. I guess in Europe, it would be Napoleon versus the, the traditional method. But, but they, they, they just... I think that we're going through a transformation like, and, and we've had these in histories when you invent artillery, when, you know, the, the, the longbow, you know, these all changed fundamentally the, the way that politics and war works. So well, I think we're going through one fairly massive transformation of, of hierarchical systems versus distributed network systems. Um, and then I think, so, so that's what I think we're, we're seeing. And I think that if you look at the people who are in charge of the institutions, they don't understand. Um, The other thing is even just debugging the system, just going back to Julia Angwin and her identifying that this just judiciary is now depending on a system that's random or maybe negative. But she wrote this over a year ago. Nothing's happened. You know, we haven't fixed this. Uh, and, you know, and we're talking about judges who are supposed to be paying attention to this kind of thing, but it's, they still continue to use these risk ratings and things like that. So, so, so my fear is that there's no one whose job it is to fix these kinds of problems because they're not in the sort of target of the kinds of problems. This is why the immune system is a good example. This is a kind of pathogen that we don't have a targeted defense for. So they easily sneak into the system. And, and, you know, and again, Pulitzer Prize nominated article about it but no one's changing. You know, you talk to Julia and, uh, you know, she's still very passionate about this. And th this is why I'm, I want us as technologists to get involved too, because I think that it's almost has a technical, technical element. So for instance, you know, I think we need to work on a system that audits any um, data set or machine learning uh, system. But right now it's all proprietary. I don't think that they know how to think about it, you know. So if you're a lawyer, you don't know how to think about how should I go after this problem because it's a, in a category that didn't exist before. And I think there's a lot of those things where there's no, talking about building institutions, there's no one whose job it is to go after this problem or this problem or this problem. And so, and the new problem types or the new attack vectors or the new inc the cancer types are evolving um, faster than we can keep up. Is that why you're interested in... For example, civil disobedience, as you, you uh, had a call for a price uh, mm -hmm. for $250,000. Uh, why are you interested in nonviolent? This could be interesting to our listeners, actually. There's a price. Uh, you can win $250,000 at MIT if you are engaged in civil disobedience in a constructive mm -hmm. way, some, in a way that changes society for, for the better. Yeah, it's not just civil disobedience. No. It's, it's okay. any kind of di disobedience and it's for societal good in a nonviolent way, uh, in a responsible way. Um, and there's a lot of criteria on our page that you should read. Uh, some of the kids on the internet say it sounds like an obedience award <laughs> because we have too many criteria. But, um, but then also the conservative people here tell me that it's, it's dangerously political. Um, but, but I think the idea is that you, know, you don't win a Nobel Prize by doing exactly as you're told. You don't change the laws by just obeying them. I, you know, my, one of my favorite quotes is the Martin Luther King quote about you, know, you have the moral imperative to follow just laws 
but also more imperative to resist unjust laws. And when you talk to you know judges, um, they say you you should question the law, you should question authority, and think for yourself. And I think it's an extremely important part of democracy, which is to question authority. And if you don't agree, you should say it. You know, and I mean, even on the test to get the U.S. citizenship, it says very clearly, you know. That your 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 role is to you know pick uh, a political position and to speak up and to you know be you know they don't say disobedient but 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 at least you know dissent and free speech are are, are enshrined in the United States and most democratic places. So I think that you know right now we have built a lot of institutions that have even the institutions like academia and others in science. You know a lot of the the institutions have built these systems that are trying to defend against. Um, things that uh, shake them up, but I think you know whether it's the media lab or, or or you know the the public. Um, I think it's uh, and and we by the way we can't we announced this prize last year in July before the election. So disobedience has become quite popular. But 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 we designed this before. A lot of uh, good candidates. Yes. For the prize, I yes. can ima- I can imagine a lot of unusual candidates. Yeah. Right. Right. But um, last question. Last question. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a metaphysical question. No, it's a, uh, about the, 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 the techniques of change. Um, you, you said nonviolent um, action. That's what what mm-hmm. we talked about in, in the awareness class. But also the strategies of awareness or mm-hmm. meditation mm-hmm. Or, or Eastern Western philosophy, non dualistic mm-hmm. or dual thinking. Um, are are all these? I mean, those are all old strategies, and mm-hmm. some, sometimes they come from the sixties and seventies, mm-hmm. like like the um, uh, like Marshall Gans' approach to, yeah. to, to societal change. Um, are all these strategies that 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 are connected in a way for you with this uh, network approach to societal change or technologies? So of are mm-hmm. these um, fields that that f- inspire each other sort of this this uh, mm-hmm. yeah non-dualistic thinking which is basically i guess mm-hmm. uh, cybernetic mm-hmm. uh, in in origin um, or or re- represents the way that networks so, are working within machines and, and yeah i i think we built a lot of institutions a lot of rules a lot of philosophies around a particular short period of history after the industrial revolution when you had uh, scalable distribution and you had specialization and mass production um, and we think we've been this way forever whether it's a capitalist system or a political system i think in fact we've just finished we're finishing a phase um, and i think we need to go back to first principles and whether it's our relationship to nature whether it's our awareness of ourselves and i think that you know this was a, a weird period in history and You know, a lot of the stuff that we used to do are still, they still make sense. And, and you know, I think, like, even if you just go, you go back a little bit further, but, you know, the the idea that the growth is good, you know, that's relatively new. It's kind of a, actually was a European thing, right? So So when the Europeans went to Australia and they met the Aborigines, whose goal was to thrive in nature, but not to gain or progress... The Europeans said, oh, they're not humans because uh, all humans want to grow. And so they shot them uh, as animals. And until as recently as the 60s, I think they were listed in the textbooks in in, in, in uh, Australia as like fauna, you know. And uh, how could they be human if they don't want to kill each other and, and, and uh, steal the free energy, you know. But, but I think a lot of things that we think of as like modern human core values are actually new they're they're post industrial revolution maybe they're even some of these are post monotheism you know and so by rolling back to before some of these modern historical events we may think of and find new ways um to ask the questions so 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 there's a there's a great uh essay by uh, Donella Meadows on how to intervene in complex systems. And, and she talks about you know, the lowest being changing the, the, the data, then there's the rules, the, and then you get to the goals. But the most important is the paradigm. And I think right now we're living in a paradigm that was generated for post-monotheism, post-industrial revolution. And you know, there's, a, there's an interesting project right now among, among environmentalists, which is that about 25% of the world's land is controlled by indigenous people. And about 80% of the carbon sink and about 80% of the biodiversity is on this 25% of the land. And when you 
look at these indigenous people, they're typically not sort of, they're just, they flourish in nature. So it's not about sustainability, spending less, lowering your carbon footprint. These people have a philosophy that works very well with nature, and it predates a lot of these other things. And so the, when traditional conservation has been kind of top-down, and they kind of thought these primitives didn't have any of the solution, we need to kind of out-science the system. But there's a new thinking that says maybe there's something that we can learn from the indigenous people who seem to be thriving in nature. So, so some of this kind of hippie-like things that I talk about in my class is really trying to question some of the belief systems that we have and say maybe these belief systems don't make sense anymore because we don't have to make human beings behave like robots in factories if we have robots. And maybe the when you grow past, maybe more than enough is too much, you know, and, and maybe we have more than enough. And so, so those are some of the questions that tie back to uh, some of the, you know, without getting religious, I guess I mentioned monotheism. I tease monotheists a lot because I think, you know, they have a particular, you know, again, it's it's a kind of a new thing, you know. <laughs> and um, I think it's interesting to look at societies that weren't monotheist and instead of just looking at them as primitive, were there things that worked better um, before we had that? On that note, uh, wish we could continue this, but we only have an hour. Thank you, and I'm sure, um, I know, I've been reading your blog, so I know you're super busy, and <laughs> I have a lot of emails to answer. So thank you so much thank for, you. for your time. Thank, thank you. you.